With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Your brain needs support and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassad. And me, Daniel Ben-Koren. Daniel, what have we got on today's show? So this week is a special episode. We're releasing it on the anniversary of the Chernobyl disaster. I believe it's the 33rd anniversary since that disaster took place in Ukraine. Huge geopolitical consequences, which are still being felt today in the debate about nuclear power. So we have Adam Higginbotham, the journalist, who has a new book out called Midnight in Chernobyl. And he was interviewed by Evan Ratliff, the host of the Long Form podcast. And what was new about this book that he's released? So you'll hear over the course of the episode, but Adam claims to have uncovered some new hidden truths about the disaster, which have only come to light as part of his investigations. So it's a really interesting conversation, and we hope you enjoy listening. And for those of you who are based in London, if you're interested in coming to any of the Intelligence Squared live events, you can buy tickets on our website at intelligencesquared.com. And to our podcast listeners, we're giving an exclusive 20% discount. Use the promotional code podcast at the checkout. Hello, I'm Evan Ratliff. I am a journalist. I'm the author of the book, The Mastermind, and I also co-host a different podcast called The Longform Podcast. But today, we welcome you to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. Uh, You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. Today, I am here with Adam Higginbotham. He's the author of Midnight in Chernobyl, the story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster. Welcome, Adam. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here with you. Um, I knew about the writing of this book for a long time because we're friends and uh, I was following its progress over the uh, many years. And I was writing in what used to be your office. That's true. That's true. I've I've literally overseen, not overseen as in directed, but I have seen the process of books accruing on your desk (laughs) over many years. So one place I wanted to start was, so the subtitle is The Untold Story of the World's Greatest Nuclear Disaster. And one thing that really interested me was at what point and how did you first determine that there was an untold story? You know, Chernobyl, if you're of a certain age, you know something about Chernobyl. Obviously, a younger person, it may just be a word. But even I considered myself a person who might know a fair amount about it and discovered that I absolutely did not upon reading your book. So, But when did you dis- decide or figure out that there was a story that had not been told? Uh, a long time ago. Um, because because I had a similar experience. Uh, what happened is that that I was I was assigned a magazine story back in 2006, just before the 20th anniversary of the accident, um, to go to Russia and Ukraine and interview eyewitnesses. And that was because 
uh, I wanted to write, uh, you know, like a 6,000 word magazine story that just kind of recreated the events. I had recently read um, Walter Lord's book about the sinking of the Titanic and Night to Remember. And it was just, I'd never read it before. I was totally blown away by it. Um, and I was casting around for ideas and realized that the 20th anniversary of the Chernobyl accident was coming up and I thought, having just read this book, I thought, well, wait, this is a, I've never read a story, a magazine story that, that tells this tale. And this is a kind of, you know, this is obviously an amazing event. It's a major, it's one of the major historical events of the 20th century. Um, so then I went away and read the, the handful of books that had come out in the immediate aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union that told a version of the Chernobyl story to prepare myself to go and meet these people. Um, and I spent a few months kind of you know, digging around and trying to, to find contacts with people who, who might have survived. And I didn't imagine that, that, you know, many people who had been there had made it through. So my, the first surprise was that, that there were plenty of these people still walking around. It was just nobody had bothered to talk to them for, for, you know, almost 20 years. That was, I mean, one of the, the shocks of the book was just the number of people who were directly involved and then that you were able to go just exactly. find them and, and ask they, them and they, you know, And they were there when it happened. I mean, you, I, I don't know whether you find this, you know, when you're reporting, but sometimes you, you sit there and people are telling you things and you just, you kind of, your journalist brain is going, come on, you can't really have seen this stuff. It seems so totally implausible. And then you realize that, you know, actually they, they were there and they did see this stuff. And it's just that nobody has ever bothered asking them these questions about it before. Um, so broadly, that was that was what I realized, um, because you know that version of the story, that kind of eyewitness version of the story, had not really been told, certainly not in full before. Um, and you know the kind of of reporting that I wanted to do, where you you go into the the detail of the kind of the sights and the sounds and the smells and the emotional experience of what people went through, that had not been done before at all, really. Um, and you know, just just before I went out to to Moscow to meet the first of these people, uh, you know, in the months preceding that, Svetlana Alexeyevich's Voices from Chernobyl had just been published mm -hmm. in translation for the first time. Um, but that's a kind of it's you know it's a very powerful book, but it's also odd because many of the people in the in the book are anonymous, so it's direct testimony. But you don't really know who these people are, and they kind of—it's—it's it's an almost kind of hallucinatory, uh, impressionistic account of what happened, which doesn't—it has no real narrative. Right. It's not the story of what. Right. Happened. It's not the story of what happened, and it doesn't—it doesn't contextualize it in any way. I mean, this is obviously very deliberate, but but that's a very different thing. So what I wanted to do was to you know recreate in novelistic detail, uh, you know, this historical event and take you back to you know, what it was like to live in the Soviet Union. Um, and then very specifically, you know, there are there are things that I discovered on that first reporting trip when I was interviewing these people, uh, you know, that, that just weren't in any of the accounts that I'd read previously. Specifically, there was this, this one guy who was a, um, a nuclear physicist named Benjamin Prunichnikov who had worked at, at you know, at atomic plants and, and uh, weapons facilities within the nuclear industrial complex throughout the Soviet Union before he came to work at Chernobyl. And, um, you know, he had seen a lot in his time doing that. And I asked him at one point, 
uh, a, the similar question that I asked a lot of other eyewitnesses on that trip, which was, you know, what for you was the most frightening moment of this experience? And of course, I expected most of them to say, well, I was in this building and there was this huge explosion and we thought the Americans were attacking at last or, you know, I, I, I thought it was all over. Uh, but he didn't say that. He said, well, I think for me, the most frightening moment was was around May the 5th, um, several days after the initial explosion, when me and my um, colleagues in the nuclear safety department at the plant thought that there was going to be another much larger cataclysmic explosion, and we were all going to die instantly. Um, and that had not previously come to light. Oddly, this had not been mentioned in... in <laughs> in any of the accounts I'd read before. And I just thought it was another of those kind of, wait a minute, hang on, who is this guy? Experience. And then, you know, certainly when I began reporting the book, you know, it became clear that this was exactly what many, many people who were there in the early days of May were convinced of. And then I found, you know, Politburo transcripts where, where <laughs> Gorbachev is discussing whether or not they should evacuate not merely the 30-kilometer exclusion zone immediately around the plant, but 500 kilometers out from the plant because they just thought that the whole place was going to be blanketed in fallout from this enormous explosion. Yeah, and, and render huge swaths uninhabitable right. and a massive, even more massive radioactive cloud right. drifting around exactly. Europe. So let's, let's, let's sketch out just a little bit. I mean, in terms of the book is a narrative book, so it's following the story, but you start you start by sort of uh, creating the atmosphere around Chernobyl before the accident. And that to me was, was some of the most interesting part of the book because it's all sort of, uh, a, a preface of sort of why everything that happened could happen. Right. Um, and I'm curious about recreating that, that feeling, the sort of feeling of ambition that was behind Chernobyl and the city and everything that was being built up. Did you get that from individual people? Did you get that from documents? Like, how did you create that sense? There's one moment in particular where they install the um, Brukhanov, Brukhanov? Brukhanov, yeah. Brukhanov installs this statue of Prometheus yeah. in the town. Yeah. And it's sort of this crowning moment of the Chernobyl reactor is going to open. And the, and you, you rightly note that he's just forgotten part of the Prometheus story. Like, Prometheus was able to obtain fire, but also ended up suffering for eternity for it. <laughs> and and mankind was rewarded for, for for their error in taking the gift of fire by by being given Pandora's box. <laughs> yeah, yes. exactly. And so I'm interested in the in how you sort of uh decided to kind of create that that atmosphere first before because there's a way where you just you just start with the accident. Right. Well I mean that's I mean that was another kind of aspect of the, the an, un, an untold aspect of the story that really galvanized me to begin exploring it more deeply in the first place was that that when I first went out there in 2006, you know, I, I quickly realized that I had been, on my part, just as much a victim of propaganda as people in the Soviet Union had been in 1986. I mean, I was 17 when the accident happened. And my conception of people who lived in the Soviet Union was these kind of, you know, gray automatons marching in lockstep towards a dim future, um, you know, in this kind of dystopian empire of evil, you know, like the first Apple commercial. I mean, that was pretty much how I <laughs> that's how I envisaged people who lived in the Soviet Union. But, as, of course, as soon as I began talking to them, 
you know, I, I realized that they were just, they were people much like me and not much older than me at the time of the accident. They had kind of hopes and ambitions and expectations and that, that they were part of this, you know, they regarded themselves as being part of this technological vanguard of people who were working in the nuclear industry. And this was going to be the future of the Soviet Union. Um, and then, then as I began reporting the book, I gathered, you know, more and more impressions of people who lived in Pripyat, in the town that was built to accommodate everybody who worked at the plant and their families, um, that I, you know, I began to realize that this was an exceptional place, and it was deliberately designed as an exceptional place where people had access to facilities and to to foodstuffs and products and experiences that most people in the Soviet Union didn't have. It was an atom grad. It was supposed to be a magnet for the best and brightest in the nuclear industry. And as such, it was one of the best places to live. A prized posting. Exactly, in the USSR. Um, so so it, I was keen to, to, to make that clear right at the beginning of the book, um, partly because, you know, nobody had ever bothered explaining this before in a, in a book like this. Um, but also because it, it, I wanted to show the true nature of what people had lost. The people who lived in Pripyat, you know, when the accident happened, they had to turn their back on this place where, you know, their kids had grown up and where they had all these wonderful experiences and where they really enjoyed living. And they were surrounded by this kind of bucolic environment of woods and water and forest. Um, you know, and that they were not just people living under the you know, communist jackboot and were and and you know life was grim beforehand and life continued to be grim afterwards in a radioactive cloud it was not like that at all you know they lost an enormous amount and even now you know people you speak to who lived in pripyat you know regard it as the best time of their lives they loved living there it was a fantastic place to live for most people and there was there wasn't a feeling of dread when you read the book you get a feeling of dread you you know readers are going to know that something happens obviously, but <laughs> you get this sense that they were not living under a concern about this outcome. Even the managers of the plant were not really considering this possibility. No, I mean, they, they were they were under the impression that, that you know, nuclear power was safe and clean. Um, I mean, in, in, a, in a very elementary way, partly because, you know, a lot of these people had come from these you know, incredibly blighted cities elsewhere in the Soviet Union where the Soviet attitude to ecology had, had already managed to destroy the environment in all sorts of other different non-radiological ways, um, you know, and the, the Chernobyl plant just kind of sat there quietly humming and emitted nothing except, you know, every now and again a little bit of steam from a, you know, from a vent. Um, so the people accustomed to what Soviet industry looked like and was like to be around you know, the Chernobyl plant was a was a kind of magical, futuristic place. There's this sort of uh, theme of <clears throat> almost self-deception in the book or, or or sort of like ability for people to disbelieve something that's almost right in front of their eyes. And it, it feels like it applies before the accident in terms of the the aspects of the construction that led to the accident itself and the management of the plan. But it especially struck me after the accident happens that there are people there who just cannot believe that what has happened has actually happened in right. terms of like a full right. meltdown of the reactor and what did you discover about the reasons behind that well i think i mean this is this is again something that goes back to 
you know, what I wanted to find out more about because um, Viktor Bruhanov, the director of the plant in particular, had had been widely blamed for, you know, his kind of corruption and his preparedness to callously disregard the safety of the people in the town and the people at the plant um, because he had apparently, you know, attempted just to cover up what had happened, despite its obvious magnitude, even to him, uh, you know, in the minutes and hours after the explosion, you know, he'd he'd squashed attempts to evacuate. He had, you know, provided misleading figures to his superiors about what the radiation readings were. Um, you know, and this this was the blame for all of this was laid at, at his feet because it seemed that he was just like any other apparatchik and he wanted to hang on to his job at all costs and he didn't really care what happened to anyone else. Um, but when I began talking to, I mean, not just him, because obviously he's rather invested in saving his own reputation, uh, but the people who were around him at the time and, and were in the bunker with him in the hours after the accident happened, um, it became clear that what he had in common with a lot of other you know, senior tech, technocrats who were involved with trying to clean up after the explosion was that, as you say, he was just, he was unable to comprehend what had happened. He had spent so long working in this environment where they were told that the technology they were using was safe. Um, and that, that the fact was that, that all previous accidents that had happened in the nuclear complex in the Soviet Union, of which there had been many, you know, all had been, uh, you know, state secrets had all been covered up. So, so it was possible, even though there was a kind of internal rumor mill where, you know, reactor operators would get news of other accidents from their friends who worked at other plants. You know, officially, the line was that there had been no accidents. 100% safety, right? Exactly. And that, and that there, you know, nothing could possibly go wrong. And many people who worked there, even those, you know, nuclear physicists who were well-trained in the physics of the equipment that they were working with, you know, came to believe that an explosion of this type was simply impossible inside one of these reactors. Um to the extent that, you know, there were there were other people, specialists who flew down from Moscow, who, you know, even while circling the plant after the explosion in a helicopter, would look down on it and think, well, this can't possibly have happened. <laughs> I'm looking at it, and I can see that it's happened, but I just can't believe it. And I think that there's, you know, there's there was a clear psychological break here where the enormity of what took place was something that, that these people were simply unable to comprehend. And I'd be interested to know whether that's true in other disasters too. Oh, it seems like a contributing factor must have been just, it's so s- silent in a way. After the initial accident, there's no, there's drama in the rescue, in the, in the attempt to, to deal with the accident. There's a huge amount of drama in that. But the radiation itself is just, it's just there. It's just right. looming. Right. And so they're all sort of standing around with these gadgets that, to try to measure it, but some of them work and some of them don't, and, they're, and they most disbelieve of them go off the, the ones scale. they go because, off the scale, right. and then they just disbelieve it. It's just right. remarkable. I mean, and that's what's what's you know at the heart of what terrifies people about this story, in particular about radiation in general. I think is the fact that you can be standing there, and it can be a sunny day, and there are birds in the sky, and you know a nice breeze blowing, but you can be being killed by this silent force that's right beside you. And there's this parallel in there were the individuals who who have difficulty sort of grappling with the enormity of it. And then there's a parallel 
at the state level in terms of how the Soviet government is trying to confront this or in some cases refusing to confront it completely. And was that a story that you knew going in or was that a story that you discovered along the way in terms of the, I mean, we know that information was slow to come out to the West, but internally the insistence on not confronting it in various ways that that struck me as remarkable that I would have assumed that internally it would be all hands on deck in many ways, but externally it would just be a restricted slow flow of information. Right. I think that, that, um, you know, part of the accepted narrative of the, of the disaster in, in the immediate aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet union was that they had just the Politburo, Mikhail Gorbachev, everybody in Moscow had just kind of cynically attempted to blanket the whole thing in secrecy from the outset, um, just as they had with all previous nuclear accidents, just as they had with, you know, other major mishaps like inadvertently shooting down a Korean airliner full of passengers. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, the, you know, the truth was slightly more complicated. So when I began looking into the, the um, transcripts of these meetings and looking at the accounts of members of the Politburo who were there at the time, you know, it was clear that there was this kind of struggle between the forces of reform and the forces of repression uh, over whether or not they should release more information. Um, you know, but the undercurrent of, of repression was, was clearly too strong even right from the beginning. Um, so they did just attempt to minimize as much as possible the information that came out. Um, and then you've got the KGB who are, you know, deliberately trying to prevent Western reporters from even filing reports from their offices in Moscow. Right. Um, yeah, having, you know, because I spoke to, to, um, this one reporter from, from US News and World Report who, 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 um, wrote in his memoir about how he looked out of the window one morning in the week after it happened and saw a group of men pulling cables out of a manhole cover in the courtyard outside his apartment. And he just thought, oh, well, well they're clearly taking all measures possible to, to cut off communication with the outside. Well, well, it's an incredible moment in the book, partly because, uh, I mean, sort of in the swirl of how we talk about the news today and the media and deception and propaganda, you have on the one side this propaganda machine like trying to control information and then Western reporters getting in, but also getting it way, way wrong in the other direction. Right. It's like thousands of people have died in the initial explosion and things like that. And, and the truth lies, you know, somewhere. Exactly. In this but part. I mean, that, you know, cause that you've got the, the New York Post reporting that 15,000 people had died apparently in the explosion and then been you know, buried as nuclear waste in some huge dump somewhere in Ukraine. Um, and to this day, I think that particular report remains a reason why, you know, when people think about the Chernobyl, they still think now that thousands of people must have died almost instantly. Absolutely. If you had asked me prior to reading your book, how many people did I think died in Chernobyl, my ambient knowledge would have informed me that it was at least a thousand people. Right. And, and we can blame the, the New York Post. <laughs> but so the um, one of the remarkable things about the story itself is that it's there's the the lead up and the and the accident of course and there's you have incredible detail about what happened in the accident in a moment by moment basis but then that's only partway through the book and then the attempts to confront 
the outcome and the variety of scientists that come in and the thousands of people that are sort of thrown at this problem in various ways. It just struck me that it was incredible to me that there was no plan, that the every plan was being devised on the fly. Right. That part of it, and there's one plan and there's another plan and there's another plan and some of the plans contradict each other and some of the plans are uh, actually have negative right. outcomes. And how did you manage to get a grip on how how much of that there was? Because it, it happened over a, a year, basically. Yeah, that's true. Um, that I mean, that was one of the most complicated parts of reporting the book because that was uh, part of the story that nobody had really uh, reported in, in English before. Mm -hmm. um, and those reports that had been written in English had been kind of confused and mangled and misinterpreted so there was a kind of received account of what had happened uh which was you know often truly spectacular and full of amazing details but when you began asking the people who were actually there about these amazing details it it turned out that you know they were slightly less spectacular and more much more believable um than the the than the reports like that I've what, before. Can you think of an example? Well, there's there's one specific one, I, but you know, so they were they were less surprising in one way, but often you'd find out that they were much more horrifying and ridiculous, uh, true versions of what had happened. Uh, I mean, the most extreme example I can think of is is the fact that there's this otherwise, as far as I can gather, you know, very good documentary about what happened that came out in 2006, um, in which the narrator very confidently asserts that in order to um, mount this attempt to dig underneath the ruins of the reactor and, and cool the ground underneath it and prevent uh, a meltdown happening. They enlisted 10,000 miners from all over the Soviet Union to come in and, and dig a tunnel. Um, now, I don't know where this figure came from, but the true figure is 426, which, which you know, sounds a lot more reasonable. Uh, it, it's hard to imagine how you get, you know, 10,000 miners. I mean, how many miners work in a mine? But so, that, I mean, there's there's an example of it. As soon as I began asking people about this, they're like, 10,000? Where do you get that from? It's crazy. But then there were stories in there that if you had told me, I would have said, well, that's ridiculous. It never happened. Attempts, like just flying helicopter flights over and just dumping sand into like tons and tons of sand. Or even some of the the efforts to dig under and freeze the ground with liquid nitrogen. Right. And those things... They also sound outlandish, but those are the ones that you discovered happened. Exactly. Um, I mean, the, the thing about the liquid nitrogen is even more prosaic when you find out about the truth, because what, what I discovered is that this was a this was a well-worn technique that they used in both Moscow and Kiev when they were digging subway tunnels. Mm. This, was a, it, it, this was an engineering technique that they used quite frequently, was to freeze the ground and make it easier to drill or more solid or something. You say that... that that this stuff was kind of had to be thought up on the fly. And it would be very reassuring for us to think that, you know, here in the West, you know, detailed plans had been thought out in advance to deal with this kind of catastrophe. But in fact, that you know, nobody had bothered thinking of this stuff. So they had to think it up as they were going along. But but the same thing would have happened if you'd had a similar catastrophe in the United States. So it was not a product of the rot of the of the Soviet government, it was actually no one had considered the most extreme version of a nuclear accident. No, no. Um, you know, in the United States, they had had um, 
they had a projections were were figured out of what would happen if you had an explosion like this inside a nuclear plant um but they were just evacuation plans they didn't have <laughs> plans for how you would deal with the consequences they're more plans about you know how would you would how you would get 250,000 people out of the tri-state area in a hurry if you needed to I'm here with Adam Higginbotham. He's the author of Midnight in Chernobyl. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful, so it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash intelligence. We're back with Intelligence Squared. I'm Evan Ratliff. I've got Adam Higginbotham, author of Midnight in Chernobyl. So I want to go walk through the process a little bit of writing the book because it's so fascinating to me um, how you sort of entered this world. I mean, do you have any uh, ties to Russia? Do you speak Russian? Did you have a background in any uh, Soviet studies before you embarked on this endeavor? Uh, I don't speak Russian or Ukrainian. And I do have a degree in history, but that was a very long time ago. Um, no, I mean, I approached it simply as a, as someone who wanted to tell a really good story, you know, which is what I've, I like to think I've spent my entire career doing. Um, you know, so when I first came upon it, I, I, I recognized that there would be significant challenges in reporting it. Um, and perhaps had I realized exactly how significant those challenges would prove to be, I would never have started. But, um, but no, I, I mean, I was drawn into it by the story and by the stories of the people that I met back in 2006. And, you know, I, I did one magazine story in 2006, and then I came back to it again in 2011 to do another story for Wired. Um, you know, and then I, I kind of, I had experiences with radiation that frightened me sufficiently that, that 
I remember sitting in the hotel in the exclusion zone and looking out of the window and saying to myself, I am never returning to this dreadful place. It has terrified me too much. What was your experience? Were you taking your own reading? How were you determining what was safe for you to do? Uh, I was accompanied on that trip by um, a physicist from the um, Academy of Sciences in Kiev uh, who had a Geiger counter with him. Um, and it was, I think, that you'll recognize the mindset that lies behind this story, uh, which is that, that you know, it was nothing to do with his readings or, or um, his guidance. Quite the opposite. I was writing a story about the ecology of the exclusion zone. Um, about the effect that radiation had had in the long term over on um, the flora and fauna within the exclusion zone. And I was looking for a lead for my magazine story mm -hmm. and introduction. And so my mind went immediately to, well, we must find the most radioactive spot inside the exclusion zone and go there. It's a good lead. Exactly, right, in theory. So, um, so I, I, spoke to Gennady, uh, the physicist, and our guide for the exclusion zone. And we went to, to the Red Forest, which is this, this area of, of pine forest inside the exclusion zone, very close to the reactor building that was blanketed in, in the heaviest fallout from the reactor in the hours and days um, after the explosion while this, this fire raged on in the graphite stacks that went on for a long time. Um, and it was called the Red Forest because in the weeks after the explosion, the pine needles in the trees, which had been killed by this tremendous amount of radiation, turned gradually from green to this kind of russet, coppery color. And photographed from the air, it looked astonishing. It's mm. kind of the whole thing turned red. Um, and it remained incredibly radioactive for a long time afterwards, so much so that they, they, the Soviet engineering troops had to cut the whole thing down and bury it in concrete-lined pits. Um, and they, you know, some places were replanted with with more pine trees, and you can visit this this place to this day. Are they and red? Are they the, no, because they were cut down and buried. No, but the new ones didn't. The grow new ones red. did not. No, because the new ones were living, mm -hmm. but they were buried in deeply radioactive soil. Mm -hmm. So we went to this place, and and you can, you know, uh, on the perimeter of the this area, you know, the trees look pretty healthy, and they look like regular pine trees, and they're tall and look like christmas trees and then but Gennady led me down this path to to head further into the forest and then as you walked through the forest you could see that the trees got smaller and, and slightly less regularly shaped and then they became kind of twisted and stunted and the needles on the 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 boughs of the trees became peculiar shapes larger or smaller than they should have been and then and then the trees really began thinning out and and Gennady had a a Geiger counter with him that was emitting an audible signal telling us how much radiation there was around us. And it began to get quite chattery, this thing. And eventually where you know, the trees became quite stunted and small and etiolated, uh, to use the technical term, uh, he said, well, I think we should probably not go any further. And I said, yes, yes, Gennady, absolutely right. Uh, let's turn around and go back. So we began walking back the way we'd come. And we'd got, you know, about 50 yards or so. And I just thought, you know what, it's just... It's not good enough for a lead. I think we need to go a bit deeper into the forest. Um, so I persuaded Gennady to, to, to go back down the path, and we walked on and on and on. And the thing got louder and louder and louder and more and more radioactive. And eventually he said, look, we, now we really have to stop because over there, and he pointed to this area where there was just nothing at all. It was just like sandy ground with 
dead pine needles and some, you know, and some broken trees that had fallen into the spot. He said, don't, don't, we don't want to go over there. Um, so let's turn back now. And we did. But afterwards, because I didn't have, although I had a Geiger counter, I had no dosimeter, which is the device that would measure what your total absorbed dose of radiation was. Mm -hmm. So I had no idea how much radiation I had personally received on this walk in the woods. And it just preyed on my mind. Um, well, let me say that seems uh, unwise, given that there, a great amount of time in the book is devoted to talking about the workers with dosimeters after the accident being able to go in for and when they're close to the reactor itself, you know, five minutes, four minutes, an hour, all of that is very well described in the book. So I would assume that you also would be aware of how much radiation exposure you yourself could be allowed in the reporting process. Well, I wasn't writing the book at that point, and I didn't know as much about it. And the other thing is, it's, you know, it's like we were saying earlier, it's very deceptive. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a nice day. It's, you know, the weather's clear. You can hear this thing making this noise, but that's the only indication that there might be anything faintly off about the environment that you're in. Well, it reminds me of the the day after the accident, the scenes of people sunbathing by the river, and it's a perfectly normal day in the town. Exactly. No one has even been aware that there is an accident, and they're living their daily lives with no knowledge. Right. Um so yes, yeah, so so I had that experience, and it, and it and it really it brought home to me exactly how frightening a concept radiation was and, and how frightening the experience of it was. And it terrified me so much that I did say, I'm never doing this again. This is insane. I can't, I just don't want to do this. It's really shaken me to my core. And then, you know, four years later, I was back. <laughs> the The documents that you uncovered that, that helped to reveal what was happening at the state level and at the political level and the decision making were those had those already been surfaced did you have to dig to find those was there still an element of secrecy behind what had happened in chernobyl at sort of the governmental level or when this when the soviet government collapsed did all of that sort of just come to light no i think that uh, a lot of that stuff came to light because one great source of documents is this material that was um, that was declassified by by Boris Yeltsin in the early 90s as part of his um, attempt to bring the Communist Party to trial for having, you know, neglected their responsibilities for looking after the Soviet people. And there was a whole tranche of documents released then that pertained specifically to Chernobyl, which was, you know, then regarded as this perfect example of exactly how uh, the Communist Party had misled the people of the Soviet Union. Um, so there are documents in there, but and and you know the story of the the Politburo level cover up had been written about before, and some documents had surfaced, but but not all in the same place. So there were some that I found. You know, one of the key ones I found in the appendix of uh, a history of Chernobyl that had been published in Russian. By this guy who ended up, who's a who's a Russian Chernobyl historian and a former military officer, who had got access to the Argani archives in Moscow, and um, you know, and and had found this transcript of this one meeting that I hadn't seen anywhere else, and I was kind of because the some of these documents had emerged from archives that had been opened and then closed again after the Soviet government, you know, uh, after the Russian government had had changed hands when Putin came in. You know, he began closing a lot of archives that had previously been opened. 
Um, but, uh, you know, this document in particular, uh, because it was so remarkable, I was kind of suspicious of its provenance. It appeared in the appendix of this history. So I, I, I went and met the guy who wrote the book and, and then, and then asked him about the provenance of this document. And he explained that it was in the archives and he had been allowed into the archives, but he had not been permitted to copy it and therefore had to produce his own handwritten transcript of this document and then leave the archives with it. And that is what he had used to reproduce it in the appendix of, of his history. Um, so it wasn't so much that, that, you know, I was uncovering this stuff. It was just that I was, I was finding it in different places and synthesizing it into a continuous narrative. And is it your sense, I mean, you lay out a case um, that the Chernobyl accident accelerated the both the Gorbachev's sort of perestroika openness. It, it contributed to that and also to ultimately to the collapse of, of the government. Is that accepted wisdom within Russia now or within the Ukraine now? I well I think it it's it's been accepted wisdom on some level for a long time and not least because Gorbachev himself you know likes to lay the blame for the collapse of the Soviet Union uh at someone else's feet mm. and and in 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 his case he has specifically gone on the record and said I think that the Chernobyl disaster was the turning point that that led to the collapse of the USSR um but I think that that the most accurate version of of how significant Chernobyl was to to the fall of the Soviet Union um, is that it changed Gorbachev's own mindset. So it was not, you know, because it, it, it's it's quite widely reported, you know, that the financial impact of the accident was such that that you know this alone, you know, destroyed the Soviet Union from the inside. But actually, if you look at the figures. This, you know, as a proportion of of GDP, it's 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 nothing really. Well, it's not nothing, but it's not significant enough to bring down the entire empire. Um, but what happened is that the is that the accident made Gorbachev realize exactly how misled he and other Soviet leaders had been about the the nuclear state and the level of secrecy and the number of accidents and its unreliability, and and. More broadly, it made him realize how corrupt the entire system that he'd been handed was, and it made him plunge more deeply into these this program of reforms that 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 he hadn't even started really when the accident happened. Um, but those reforms were so badly bungled and and done so hurriedly um, that they led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. So it's really a kind of you know there is a direct link. But it's not that you can say Chernobyl happened and therefore it collapsed. But 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 Chernobyl changed Gorbachev's mind about what he had to do if he was going to try and save the USSR. So he's sort of having this same awakening that's happening at all levels. The plant, the plant manager, everyone's sort of uh, yeah. becoming cognizant of something that was they were previously unaware of about the way the salt was working. Exactly, and, and Gorbachev is realizing it on the highest and most extreme level possible. So. I want to talk to you about a couple of writing challenges of this book because I, I was really stunned with how you were able to grapple with these two issues. And one of them is the number of, of characters that were involved, characters, subjects, people who were involved. Right. Uh, and how did you 
choose your constellation of people because they're 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 at all levels and some of them have to right. be brought on for part of the book and then some of them come on stage partway through and then exit and then new ones come on how did you keep it all in your head i think is the question that i'm asking um that is a good question uh well i think i because you know i before i began work on the book i obviously had a a pretty good idea of the overall trajectory of the story uh and i had read enough other accounts in english of the story that i knew that you know to an english reader if you had too many of these people with slavic names um and and positions within the soviet bureaucracy that seemed interchangeable or were given these kind of confusing names then you just quickly lose track of who's who and and what's going to happen and you don't become attached to any character at all really and the whole story just becomes hopelessly confusing um but you know what i set out to do was to was to choose a handful of characters who could carry the story um and i think that the you know the the most important choice there was was to isolate the story of the director of the station victor brihanov who you know is there at the very beginning when the site for the station is just this this field in which he stands up to his knees in snow in 1970 and you know his superiors in the communist party tell him what he's going to be doing there you know and it's going to become the biggest nuclear power plant in the world and you know and and his life is utterly destroyed by what happens over the next 30 years but then you know i realized that 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 he was still alive at the time when i began reporting the book and so if i could find him and talk to him about his experiences then i would have a character who would would carry the whole story from beginning to end. Um, so the first and most important thing I had to do was 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 to try, <laughs> was to try and find him, uh, which I did. And 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 once I'd done that, then then you know there are other characters, individuals who I had met myself um, over the years of reporting different stories, who I who I had become you know kind of attached to, and whose whose stories were both fascinating and moving. And who, you know, I knew were these kind of wonderful, fascinating people. Um, so I knew that, that they would also be important protagonists in the book. Um, and then, you know, there were the, the other characters of the people who play key roles in the story at specific points, like, you know, Leonid Toptonov, who, um, who was the person who pressed the emergency shutdown button that precipitated the explosion that caused the whole thing. Now, um, although in the narrative of the book it, it it would be something of a spoiler to point out that that you know he died uh in 1986 i knew again that he was someone whose character i had to report out as fully as possible to make the narrative work um and so then i you know i found brahanov um and his wife valentina and spent some time with them and and but then i needed to find people who knew Leonid Toptonov, who in other accounts I'd read of the accident had just been this sort of ghostly presence. He's nothing more than a name. Mm. Um, you know, and it's and he was very young, so we know he was very young, but it's often written that he was he was inexperienced and ignorant and didn't know what he was doing. So, you know, I I managed to find like I spoke to his best friend. I spoke to several people who went to um MIFI, which is the kind of Soviet equivalent of MIT in Moscow, and studied nuclear engineering with him for four years. Um, and I went and met his mother and, you know, I, I, she, 
I spent a long time with her and she she told me all about his life. He was their only child. Um, and it turned out that he was born on the um, at the Cosmodrome where uh, Yuri Gagarin was launched to become the first man in space. And, and his father was deeply involved in the Soviet rocket program. Um, you know, so I managed to build a picture of him from just finding you know, friends and relatives of his. Um, and I, you know, I did a similar thing for, for other characters in the narrative, but, but in the end, because I spent a long time reporting the book and I was, you know, I did a lot of the reporting as you would any story where you'd meet one person and you'd say, who else should I speak to? And they'd give you a phone number. And you, you know, I ended up doing around 80 interviews with different people. Um, and in the end I had so many of these fascinating stories. It was just much too much. So a lot of work of, of, of writing the book was just kind of discarding, uh, these people's stories and trying to figure out who I could get in and who I couldn't um, and how not to, you know, confuse the reader. You you touched on something that was uh, related to the second part of the writing challenge that I was going to ask about, which is you mentioned the pushing of the button to attempt to stop the accident from happening, right. which actually precipitated the accident, which right. is a, an incredible moment in the book, but also requires understanding a level of the science to know why <laughs> why that's even important and that that seemed to me the other challenge of the book is there's a lot of complicated nuclear science connected to what happened and you have to first be able to grasp it yourself and right. second be able to explain it for even many of the, the more dramatic episodes to even make sense right did exactly. you go into it with any knowledge of of nuclear science? Like, what was your project of understanding and learning that part of it? Yes, I don't speak Russian, and I am not a <laughs> nuclear physicist. So, uh, those two handicaps alone should have worn me off the whole project. Right? That means that means it's pure reporting. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you're you're right. I mean, you know, the gold standard for this kind of thing is is Michael Lewis, who who I <laughs> I still. Uh, I'm still I still marvel at the fact that that he began a Vanity Fair story about um, the 2008 crash by explaining credit default swaps as his lead, uh, and it, it was just amazing. I'm not claiming that you know that I'm I'm any any anything as good as he is at synthesizing and and conveying this information. But yeah, so I I had to go and interview, um, you know, several nuclear physicists and nuclear engineers to to try and figure out a way of first understanding this stuff and then of conveying it in a readable way. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm very grateful to them because they, um, you know, they, they, several of these people really helped me through through being able to write this stuff. And, and what would happen is, you know, I'd go away and, and I would read the technical documents, the scientific analysis of what had happened and try and understand it. And then, uh, then I would write my own account of what happened and then I would send it to yeah, Frank von Hippel in Princeton or, or um, Alexander Sitch, who, who wrote his, his MIT doctoral thesis on, on the accident sequence. And, you know, they would send it back with notes and they would just say, you know, well, this is, this is wrong or, or this is, but frequently what they would say is this is a hopeless oversimplification. And it eventually reached a point where I'd, I'd have to say, well, well, I'm afraid the kind of point of this whole exercise is hopeless oversimplification because it's got to be just enough information so that so that you either understand it or you think as a reader that you understand it and then you can proceed with the narrative and if if we can get to that point that's fine but there was there was some back and forth between this you know 
between this these 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 poles of of hopelessly wrong and hopeless oversimplification. You is, should call it hopeful oversimplification. <laughs> <laughs> um, so and that that was really the process. But but you know I'm I'm greatly indebted to to these people who who helped me work through that and make it understandable. Well, something that that happens as a reader. And I'm curious if this was the intention in writing it is that the there's another character in the book, which is the reactor, like the reactor is in itself a character. And then this sort of mass at the bottom of the reactor that they can't find and they can't figure out what's going to happen to it. And it might be going deep into the earth and it might be about to blow up again. It was this kind of like, in my mind, this like Grendel that's just kind of like confined there and everyone's waiting to see if it came out. And I was wondering if that, if you thought of it that way, because that's how I experienced it, that there were all these people around it and then there was a character and it was this, this, this body. It's, I mean, it's, it's, I certainly did feel about it that way. And the reason that I felt about it that way is, is I had, because I'd been to the plant and, and I had got, uh, into because the 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 place where the accident took place inside unit four was right was built in the same building as the third reactor at the at the plant unit three and so uh they're right next door to one another um and in the cleanup process you know they built a wall between unit three and unit four that was made of concrete and sheets of lead because they wanted to restart unit three and keep operating it um, and the last reactor then didn't stop working until 2000. But so uh, when I went to the plant, because part of the, the process of the reporting was to understand what the kind of internal geography and topography of the plant was. So you could describe people moving from one place to the other and get it right, um, because it's a really kind of confusing place to be. It's a confusing environment. But I went to Unit 3 and went to the place where... Um, you know, the first victim of the accident has his tombstone because he disappeared into the um, wreckage of the building at the moment of the explosion and his body's never been found. But he has his tombstone on this wall, which is lead-lined and made of concrete, directly uh, on the, the, the edge of where Unit 4 is. And when you're there, you 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 know, it may just be obviously your imagination playing tricks on you, but you can feel that there's something on the other side of this wall. Um, and that was really what what kind of crystallized in my mind that feeling of 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 the reactor being a character. Um, but I think that you you feel that in in any kind of large industrial enterprise, there's a strange feeling that you can get when you're in a a kind of factory next to some huge generator that there's another that there's another presence there with you in the building, and it's a mechanical presence. And that, you know, stuck with me. So this book lands in the midst of, you know, somewhat of a revival, at least of the discussion around nuclear power that's been happening over the last, you know, five to 10 years in relation to global warming and as a possible solution when it comes to energy and climate change and one that will not contribute to climate change. You write a little bit about Fukushima, the accident of Fukushima towards the end. But where did you... Where did you come out in terms of that conversation from a broader perspective after spending so many years really delved into the details of this, the worst, you know, nuclear accident that we've had? Well, I, I, before I even started work on the book, because I'd, I'd reported on the subject before, you know, I knew that I did not have an anti-nuclear energy mindset. And I also thought that it didn't you know to to approach it in that way would be 
you know, appealing to uh, a certain kind of reader and to your own sort of natural instincts, really, because it seems there are ways in which nuclear energy feels wrong. And we know about all these accidents and radiation is scary. And But, you know, I recognized pretty early on that those were, were kind of emotionally led arguments. So, um, you know, in the end, I... I, I I'm, I find myself pretty persuaded by these ideas that, you know, the nuclear reactors that we're all familiar with were almost all developed from technology that was designed to manufacture weapons. These reactors were, were originally, the technology was originally developed to, to make fuel, to make atomic bombs. Um, but if you start from a place where you're making a nuclear reactor just to generate electricity, then the technology, technology can be very different. Um, and a lot safer. Um, and moreover, you know, th this accident, which everybody knows about, um, happened with, with a reactor that was never manufactured outside the Soviet Union, was, was inherently dangerous, um, you know, and it was really a product of, of the Soviet environment. And I think that, you know, that there are enormous differences between the Fukushima accident and this accident. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm persuaded certainly by the, you know, by the carbon arguments of nuclear energy um, and the, the sort of energy analysts that I spoke to for that part of the book, you know, explained to me that that while, you know, wind and solar may ultimately, you know, prove um, to provide enough electricity for us in the future, you know, that moment is not now. And given the way the need for electricity is developing in the developing world remains a long way off. So nuclear energy s seems on paper to be, you know, a, a one possible answer to that problem. So that leads me to my last question, which is you've written a book, which is, it's a story. It's not a policy book. It's not really, it's a history book in some sense. It's a work of history, but it's a narrative story about people and what happened. Obviously other people are going to want to, readers are going to want to draw lesson. They want a lesson from right. your book. And to you, is the lesson of your book, is it a human lesson? Is it a policy lesson? It's not a roadmap for, you know, nuclear power, but... No, what it's, is, a, what, it's, a, it's a human lesson. It's and, a very human lesson. And what is it? Uh, it's, a, it's a lesson about hubris, um, about technological hubris. You know, to me, you know, as I was finishing writing the book, I, I realized that, that it had a lot more in common with, you know, Walter Lord's story of the sinking of the titanic than than i than i'd realized um and that you know much as the as the proprietors of the white star line and the architects of the titanic had insisted that their ship was unsinkable um you know the designers of the rbnk reactors that, that were used at chernobyl insisted that they were extremely safe and that the the soviet nuclear industry you know led the world um and this you know even for those technical experts and reactor operators who'd, who'd spent years learning about the realities of nuclear power, you know, this represented a pretty persuasive, overarching argument. So they were very confident in the equipment that they were using. And that overconfidence is, is one of the major things that led to the accident. Really. Well, Adam, thanks for this conversation. Thank you. The book is Midnight in Chernobyl, The Untold Story of the World's Greatest Nuclear Disaster. Adam Higginbotham, and this has been Intelligence Squared.